Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today I'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with what appears to be naked partisanship on the part of the right-wing majority on the Supreme Court, who are delaying the January 6th insurrection case by entertaining Trump's bogus immunity case that legal experts argue has no basis in the Constitution, which the lower courts practically laughed out of court. Joining us is Caroline Fredrickson, a visiting professor at Georgetown Law School and a strategic counsellor on democracy and power at the Open Markets Institute. She served as the director of the ACLU's Washington Legislative Office and, during the Clinton administration, a special assistant to the President for Legislative Affairs. In 2021, she was appointed a member of the President's Commission on the Supreme Court of the United States and is the President Emerita of the American Constitution Society. Her books include The Democracy Fix, How to Win the Fight for Fair Rules, Fair Courts and Fair Elections. Then we'll look into the history of Supreme Courts that have served the political interests of some of our worst presidents going back to John Adams and how citizens fought back, as the American majority should do today, to prevent a lawless president sanctified by a lawless Supreme Court from turning the United States into a dictatorship. Joining us is Corey Bretschneider, a professor of political science at Brown University, where he teaches constitutional law and politics, as well as a visiting professor of law at Fordham Law School. He is the author of The Oath and the Office, A Guide to the Constitution for Future Presidents, and Decisions and Dissents of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, A Selection. His forthcoming book out in July is The Presidents and the People, Five Leaders Who Threatened Democracy and the Citizens Who Fought to Defend It. Then finally, we'll assess the revival of labor with organizing wins for Starbucks and at the Mercedes plant in Alabama, where a majority of workers signed up for UAW representation. Joining us is Hamilton Nolan, a labor journalist who writes regularly for In These Times magazine and The Guardian. He has written about labor politics and class war and was the longest serving writer in Gorka's history and a leader in unionizing Gorka Media in 2015. His new book just out is The Hammer, Power, Inequality, and the Struggle for the Soul of Labor. And before we begin, I would like to thank our listener donors who keep background briefing independent, corporate, and commercial-free without paywalls or constant fundraising by making tax-deductible donations to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. As we enter this fact-free and violence-prone election year, with much of the country under the cult-like spell of a deranged demagogue spewing constant lies while inciting hatred and violence, help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before our democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now is Caroline Fredrickson, who's a visiting professor at Georgetown Law School and a strategic counselor on democracy and power at the Open Markets Institute. She serves as the director of the ACLU's Washington Legislative Office and during the Clinton administration as special assistant to the president for legislative affairs. In 2021, she was appointed a member of the president's commission on the Supreme Court of the United States and is the president emerita of the American Constitution Society and her books include The Democracy Fix, How to Win the fight for fair rules, fair courts, and fair elections. Welcome to Background Briefing, Caroline Fredrickson. Thank you, Ian. So, Caroline, I can't believe that, uh, no, I can believe what just happened with the Supreme Court deciding, essentially, 
buying into Trump's bogus claims of immunity, which the lower courts had almost laughed off and made the lawyers for Trump look foolish when they had to admit that a president could, in fact, murder his opponent and get away with it. So they take up this case, and then they sit on it for two weeks, and then they say, well, we're not going to hear this until April the 22nd, and that would mean then that their decision won't come down till June, and then Judge Chutkin, who's been sitting on her hands uh, since the case has been frozen by the Supreme Court, she has to give Trump's people 82 days to prepare for the trial. So we're talking about September. And given Trump's propensity for delay, uh, it's very, very likely, isn't it, that this case will not be heard until after the election, or certainly won't the public won't get the benefit before an election of all the information about what Trump did to conduct an insurrection against American democracy. In other words, one of the greatest political crimes, if not the greatest political crime in our history, will be buried. Well, I mean, I, I, I agree with you generally, although we could see it a different way. Um, I mean, imagine, and Judge Chutkin is in a really good judge, and she runs a very tight courtroom. Um, I think she is going to move that case as as fast as is appropriate. Um, but so just imagine this instead, Ian, we have the months of September and October where you don't clearly get to a resolution of the case, but you will have Trump's uh, alleged crimes every day in the newspaper as that trial proceeds, as there's testimony. Um, it is going to be a very public um, courtroom um, people will have access to the witnesses, um, to the information that's being shared. There'll be pictures. So, I mean, in some ways, um, I, I'm not so quick to think that this is um, such a great deal for Donald Trump in terms of, of his getting his delay. He, he, you know, if I were him and his strategist, I would have rather had this unfurling in, in July and August than September and October. And I mean, the other thing I would just say is that I think well, I'm with you that I think it's it's really shameful how the Supreme Court has set this up in terms of holding off and making a decision and then making a decision and then, you know, that they're going to hear the case and then putting it off to the end of April. I'm not surprised they decided to hear it. And I think there's some also some benefit to a conclusive ruling from the Supreme Court that the president, um, when a president tries to prevent uh, his rightfully elected a successor from coming into office and tries to subvert democracy, there's no immunity for that. And I think a decisive answer to that at this moment would also be helpful. So well, I agree with you, the timing is not so great. I think there are other ways of seeing it as well. And in the other case, which is the most provable and where Trump is the most vulnerable, that is the documents case down in Florida, the federal judge there, Arlene Cannon, uh, on Friday, she's going to hold a hearing to reset the clock and possibly delay that trial even further. And it does seem that she was actually chosen because Trump recognized how important that particular district court was since it's near his residence down there in Florida. Am I being too cynical here? I mean, um, Well, no, I mean, I wouldn't expect anything but the worst from Judge Cannon. Um, he didn't get to pick her in terms of handling this case, though, but you're right that he nominated her to that to the bench, and she was um, of questionable background. 
um, certainly in terms, she was one of the youngest federal judges ever nominated. Um, uh, her experience was minimal um, before uh, becoming a judge. So, I mean, there, there are a lot of questions about her. Um, and I, I, she has already shown herself to be far from impartial in handling this case. I, you know, I, she would have grasped any straw, apparently, um, to give Trump what he wants. So this is, you know, the latest um, opportunity for her to delay the case. I'm sure she will delay the case even more. Um, but she, I, you know, what she's indicated is she'll, 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 she'll grab at anything she can um, to, um, to help Donald Trump um, with this otherwise indefensible case. So the people who chose her, and you've been working against them, and I've been doing as much reporting as I can on the Federalists and on Leonard Leo and Senate, the White House in the Senate has been doing the Lord's work in exposing what's going on. Are they happy with with her? Is that the kind of judge they want? And they, are they happy with the Supreme Court that Leonard Leo has managed to stack in, in terms of their decisions? Does it matter to them? that these judges are so nakedly partisan? Um, you know, I, it's, it's, it's somewhat hard to say. Um, I think overall they, they should be pretty pleased because from every indication, well, they pretend not to be, they seem to be pretty nakedly partisan themselves. So uh, I, I can't imagine that they've, they, they can't feel proud of what they've delivered for um, conservative outcomes, but you know where where the where the disconnect might come is that they don't necessarily think that Donald Trump was the goal. Um, what the goal was was complete um, inflation of executive power to you know in, incredible lengths, um, grotesque lengths um, to inflate the power of the presidency. That was certainly Bill Barr, and you know you and I have talked about him many a time. The, Trump's attorney general, um, one of his uh, espoused theories is uh, 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 this uh, unmitigated executive power, the unitary executive um, that they call it. Um, they also have um, a shared, uh, very um, misogynistic um, worldview um, that uh, entails denying women uh, control of their bodies um, that uh, that they have seen uh, taken again to incredible lengths by the Supreme Court. So I think in all those, you know, in terms of outcomes, they should, you know, probably feeling pretty good. But Donald Trump may not be, you know, now that they see his march towards, you know, a potential, you know, authoritarian leadership, um, they may not feel so good about that. I'm not sure they have a problem with authoritarian leadership, but he might not be the one they prefer. But is it time then for the legal pundits who keeps telling us that the Supreme Court worries about its credibility and that the Chief Justice John Roberts sort of goes through hand-wringing moments uh, wanting to make sure that it looks to the public as though they are in fact even-handed jurists as opposed to political hacks. Is it time for the scales to come off our eyes? It should have come down long ago. You know, and Ian, you and I, I think, have talked about this as well, is that there's, um, it's a mythology that Chief Justice Roberts has helped to create himself, to wrap himself in this, um, this robe of authority and justice and impartiality when, you know, every single day, practically, you know, new rulings come out of the Supreme Court that belie that 
um, espoused status of neutrality. Uh, you know, I, I think we really, um, when we talk about voting, especially and and uh, issues of race in America, where Chief Justice Roberts has been the most blatant in his attacks on the ability uh, um, to uh, to protect the right to vote, to ensure equal access to education, um, to to make sure that we have a society that actually um, is able to respond and live up to the ideals that we supposedly. Of have embodied in the in the post reconstruction amendments uh, uh, that um, he is so antagonistic to. So it's absolutely past time that people start understanding that this is the court that is cementing a Republican control over our government for you know for a long time. Well, it should be obvious that their political partisans, if not political activists, or in the case of three of those justices, John Roberts, Amy Coney Barrett, and Kavanaugh, they all went down to Florida to work to overturn Al Gore's victory there, which the Supreme Court ruled on. And of course, one of them is sitting in the court that ruled on Bush v. Gore, Clarence Thomas. But the idea, you have to be an incredible Republican political activist to want to go down there and work to undermine a Democratic victory and help seat a Republican candidate. See, you don't choose anybody but some hardcore activists, right, for that job. Yeah, no, I mean, they were all committed. Yeah. Um, and and there are, you know, famous clips of, of Kavanaugh speaking to the press at the time. Um, well, you know, he helped write the Star Report. So we can't forget that either. Um, although maybe for your, for your listeners, it's such ancient history, but even before Bush v. Gore, there was something called the uh, impeachment of Bill Clinton that was based on um, his um, very inappropriate relationship with Monica Lewinsky, um, but was really the impeachment was based on, you know, the, you know, the idea that he lied under oath. Um, but the star report was, you know, it was a lot like the report that was done um, on President Biden. It was a hit job, right? It was full of salacious details that had nothing to do with the actual investigation at hand. Um, uh, but was really designed to undermine the reputation of somebody um, who was, um, you know, facing a, a you know, a, a challenge uh, politically. So what does that mean then in terms of how the Democratic voters and Democratic leaders proceed now? Do they make an issue out of the fact that we should uh, have no illusions about who these people on the Supreme Court are and that, you know, are we going to go back to the 1930s and recognize, as FDR did, that these people are, are just going to block everything out of blind partisanship? And it got so frustrating for FDR that he even considered stacking the court. I am absolutely. I, I, you know, I think the consequences are too dire otherwise. I mean, we've seen it in so many areas, you know, already talking about the right to vote, but there's the gerrymandering cases. Um, there are cases now in the court that could really destroy the ability of the government to um, protect us um, from pollution under the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act. Um, there are so many areas, you know, beyond what we already know so well um, in terms of abortion. Oh, you know, Clarence Thomas um, and Alito, 
you know, want to undo some other critical rulings. So, um, you know, for gay marriage, for example, which they keep raising, um, God, they've given the chance. They will they will turn the clock back on on that ruling as well. So there is a lot to to worry about. And I think we just have to be honest about the fact that we have a super flaw in our system, which is life tenure for justices. Uh, that they are able to stay on forever and it gives them the power of, you know, that is beyond what most monarchs have uh, in a monarchy. They can control the future of our society um, as long as they serve on the court and they have a majority. Right. And one of the more outrageous uh, rulings that's likely to come down to ban or get rid of the National Labor Relations Act of 1937, which came in with Social Security making both of them constitutional. The two richest guys on the planet, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, along with the Albrecht family that owns Trader Joe's, are working to basically get rid of unions, because if you get rid of the National Labor Relations Board, you essentially get rid of uh, unions. That ought to tell us something, right? The two richest guys no, on the absolutely. planet want to kill off, kill unions? Come on, let's, let's organize. <laughs> no, that, and that is, um, you're, you're absolutely right to bring up um, that, uh, that case, because what they're challenging is the constitutionality of the National Labor Relations Board, that is in the whole National Labor Relations Act, uh, but by going after the structure of the board, and it doesn't seem so sexy. They're not they're not going after directly the right to organize because that's a First Amendment protected activity, right? Freedom of association. What they are going after is the mechanism to actually enforce that right um, for working people. And it's you know we all know Elon Musk has a reputation. He's you know he's 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 he well you know he's he's out there on a lot of things. He's very controversial. But let's not forget those others that you mentioned. Trader Joe's, you know, that great place where you go and buy your favorite frozen eggplant Parmesan or whatever it is that you like that they stock. Well, that's what they're up to. So don't forget it. And Jeff Bezos as well. So it's, um, you know, plutocrats apparently can't have enough that they can't have more at the expense of working people. Well, Caroline Fredrickson, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I may speak with Caroline Fredrickson, who's a visiting professor at Georgetown Law School and a strategic counselor on democracy and power at the Open Markets Institute. She served as the director of the ACLU's Washington Legislative Office and during the Clinton administration as special assistant to the president for legislative affairs. And in 2021, she was appointed a member of the president's commission on the Supreme Court of the United States and is the president emerita of the American Constitutional Society. And her books include The Democracy Fix, How to Win the Fight for fair rules, fair courts, and fair elections. And we're going to take a brief station break and back look into the history of Supreme Courts that have served the political interests of some of our worst presidents and how today we should prevent a lawless president sanctified by a lawless Supreme Court from turning the United States into a dictatorship. Tell it to the judge on Sunday. Tell it to him, leave me alone. Tell it to the judge on Sunday. And they don't get settled by riding with hoods 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Corey Brechneider, who's a professor of political science at Brown University, where he teaches constitutional law and politics, as well as a visiting professor of law at Fordham Law School. He's the author of The Oath in the Office, A Guide to the Constitution for Future Presidents, and Decisions and Dissents of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, A Selection. His forthcoming book out in July is The Presidents and the People, Five Leaders Who Threatened Democracy and the Citizens Who Fought to Defend It. Welcome to Background Briefing, Corey Brechneider. Thanks so much, Ian. Always a pleasure to speak with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And your new book, The Presidents and the People, Five Leaders Who Threatened Democracy and the Citizens Who Fought to Defend It. I mean, we're just on President's Day, a group of, <laughs> of historians and political scientists across the political spectrum placed Donald Trump 45th the lowest in terms of uh, U.S. presidents in history. And there's some of them in your new book, you know, particularly Buchanan is down there at the bottom. But the title suggests that particularly the part that the citizens who fought to defend it, we are threatened by a former leader who basically led a coup against American democracy. And now the Supreme Court, are giving him a free pass as if it doesn't matter. And this is one of the biggest crimes in American history, certainly the biggest political crime in American history. And this current Supreme Court is going to let him run out the clock so the public will never hear this case uh, or likely never to hear the case before the elections. So in order to make a decision about who this man is and what he did, which is so incredibly criminal. So I'm just at a point of despair. I mean, the scale should yeah. be off our eyes about who these these yeah. right-wing justices are. They're just a bunch of right-wing political activists in robes. Well, I mean, I'm a little more optimistic, not about the Colorado case. I think they're, they're going to find probably unanimously or eight to one that Trump has a right to be on the ballot and that Colorado was wrong to try to disqualify him. In my opinion, that is a travesty. He clearly committed insurrection, and I think he should be denied access to run, um, not just on Colorado's ballot, but nationally. Uh, On the immunity case, I'm not exactly sure what's happening. I am uh, in some ways disappointed that they took it. The lower court opinion should have just been allowed to stand. Uh, But it is possible there are some optimistic tea leaves that suggest that given what they're about to do in the Colorado case pretty clearly, that maybe they want to send a message that they really are not the political hacks we worry that they are, and that instead uh, there's a balance, and that um, they're going to find that there is no immunity for former presidents, no absolute immunity, as Trump is claiming in a um, in an argument that really stretches the imagination to be kind. Uh, I just don't see how they could find for him uh, by dragging it out. You know that might help him some ways, certainly, and there might be some justices who have that in mind, that by slowing things down, um, it might allow, it might become too late to, to try them. Uh, but in the end, I just can't see it. The arguments, I mean, I just want to re- reiterate how ridiculous they are. Part of it is they would lead to the conclusion that presidents could never be tried. The argument for immunity for sitting presidents, which I can talk about, I also don't think that's in the Constitution. It's a made-up Nixon-era and Clinton-era uh, um, myth. Uh, but even if we accept that argument that sitting presidents cannot be 
um, uh, indicted while in office. The whole idea is that they can be, it's just temporary, they can be after they, after they leave office. And the Constitution talks about the fact that um, impeachment and indictment are different, and that certainly after impeachment, a president can be, um, can be uh, indicted. And Trump basically flips the script on what the Constitution actually says, and they say that if a president is not convicted in a Senate impeachment trial, that somehow president can't be indicted. That, that's just completely made up. I cannot see them going for that argument. The best argument they have on their side is from a case called Fitzgerald, which is the Nixon era case that talks about Nixon's immunity from civil liability, civil damages in matters of official duty within the outer perimeters of official duty is the language of Fitzgerald. So Trump's lawyers, that's their better argument, not a good one is that these are somehow official duties that he engaged in on January 6th, and so he's immune because of that. But, you know, just to push back, this is a criminal trial, not a civil trial, and it certainly is not in your official duties to try to lead an insurrection. So I just don't see any of these arguments uh, getting five votes, and I'm optimistic, as skeptical as I am about the Supreme Court, I, I am optimistic that they will find that there is no uh, absolute immunity uh, for for presidents after they leave office, and just to emphasize the claim as came up in the uh, appellate court argument, uh, it would lead to the absurd conclusion that a president could criminally prosecute political opponents and be immune for doing so. Well, I think it was a, a Judge Pan in the uh, uh, appeals court that threw out this absurd legal theory of Trump's. Uh, she said to to the Trump lawyer, "Does that mean?" that he's immune, uh, he can go out and murder his political opponents, and the uh, Trump right. lawyer was, you know, stumbled around and basically had to say, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it shows you how ridiculous it is. Uh, you know, But you they're taking it up. That's the point, though, Corey. The Supreme are. Court's yeah. taking this ridiculous case seriously. They sat on it for right. two weeks before deciding then right. to punt it till April the 22nd, and right. that will mean that the Supreme Court's ruling won't come out till their term ends in June. And then Judge Chutkin is going to be forced to give them at least 82 days to prepare the case, which then pushes them into September. And yeah. uh, with Trump being the master of delay, I'm sure they'll find a way to delay it until after the election, at which point if he wins, he'll be able to uh, toss the whole thing. Yes, I'm worried that that it has a, a legal result for Trump that that might not include um, finding for him in court, but that can certainly benefit him because his strategy in court is always delay, 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 even if he's going to ultimately lose. And just to emphasize the danger here, if he wins and is elected, uh, if he loses, then, you know, then the good news is that a delay isn't going to make a difference in the long run. If he wins. Uh, it's a disaster because I do think that these justices are believe that sitting presidents are immune from criminal indictments. Now, the criminal indictments have already happened. But what about criminal trials if they're ongoing? Uh, I think they would say, well, if you're immune from an indictment and you're president, you're certainly immune from a trial because the logic of criminal immunity in the indictment case is that uh, it's too distracting and a president can't be distracted by an indictment. Well, if that's distracting, Certainly the trial is, is distracting. I should say, too, you know, it's important that we push back here, 
not just on the um, on the uh, uh, question of whether or not a president is immune uh, after serving in office, but I don't think there's any strong argument for immunity while in office. And I really want to hear uh, voices uh, making that argument because we have to anticipate the disaster that will happen if he wins, where he'll, he he could well get out of all of the legal jeopardy that he's facing, at least but, until he's no longer president. That could be four years, eight years, or never. <laughs> right. But there is no law, right, of immunity for presidents while they're in office. Isn't that a, a Justice Department ruling? It Correct. Doesn't have- there are two, two Department of Justice memos, one written during the Nixon administration as Nixon was facing possible indictment from um, uh, the special prosecutor and, and, and the grand jury that were looking into the crimes of Watergate and related crimes. And then it was reiterated, unfortunately, during the Clinton era when Clinton was facing off against Ken Starr. And really that those two moments built up the idea that a president is so important uh, that had the presidency is possessed with dignity is one argument. And the other is this too busy argument that a president will be distracted such that they can't be indicted while in office. And so it's got a bipartisan credential. But as you say, this is the Department of Justice's policy, not the policy of the, not the Constitution. And no court has ever said that. But I think this Supreme Court is very sympathetic to it. They, they tend to be uh, to embrace the theory of the, of the unitary executive. And with that, the immunity argument is, a, is part of that claim. And uh, justices like Alito have in dicta, um, for instance, in the Vance case before the Supreme Court about whether Trump could be subject to a criminal, um, uh, whether or not a criminal subpoena uh, issued to Trump um, in, uh, in, in, in the Stormy Daniels case, uh, Alito, in, in a dissent, um, indicated certainly that he believes the Department of Justice memos are correct. So it's all a way of saying it's not in the Constitution. It's not a good argument. Uh, that's my view. But I think there are probably five votes for the idea that sitting presidents can't be subject to trial or indictment. You brought up uh, Corey Brechneider, Nixon and Watergate. This, to me, yep. makes an absurdity of, of the Supreme Court's decision and Trump's arguments about immunity, because why did President Gerald Ford who succeeded him right. after Nixon resigned, why did he pardon him? He pardoned him because right. he was vulnerable and subject to prosecution, wasn't he, Nixon? Right, right. You wouldn't have needed the pardon, in other words, if it wasn't that the pardon, uh, that, that the indictment was imminent. And in fact, in this new book, to, to just describe it a little bit, and the presidents and the people, I go in depth as to the dynamics there. And I talk about how uh, there really was a concerted effort by the grand jury to indict Nixon, and it probably would have happened but for the pardon. And I should say, in my view, the pardon is one of the great disasters of American politics. It was it's been celebrated, and Ford has been given honors for trying to move the country forward and not look to the past. And in retrospect, especially given the Trump presidency, we see it for the disaster that it was, which was a failure to hold to account um, a president who had badly, repeatedly violated the law, not just, of course, in the Watergate case, but uh, in, in going after political enemies, the enemies list, uh, the attacks on Ellsberg and the psychiatrist. These were uh, real crimes committed by Nixon and his, 
henchmen that, that really needed to be brought out in a criminal trial resulting in a criminal indictment of that president. And the pardon just unfortunately ended all of that. And we really have never recovered from the Nixon presidency. That's what we're seeing right now. But the five American presidents that you profile in your new book, The Presidents and People, Five Leaders Who Threatened Democracy and the Citizens Who Fought to Defend It, are John Adams, John Buchanan, Andrew Johnson, Woodrow Wilson, and Richard Nixon. None of those, even they pale in compared to Trump's criminality and possible treason. Why didn't the you cr- include Trump? Criminal- <laughs> <laughs> it ends with Trump, and really it's, the idea of the book is it's all about Trump, that each of these presidents have an aspect of the dangers of the Trump uh, presidency, and certainly January 6th does put him in a category uh, of his own. But what I try to show is that you know we've had there is something inherently dangerous about the office of the presidency itself. It's always been all-powerful. We've always lacked the kind of checks on power that we think we should have. The Supreme Court has not served as the kind of check repeatedly that you would hope. So let's take the Adams presidency. He did actually imprison his political opponents, uh, having the Alien Sedition Acts passed and putting the editors who criticized him in prison and far from the Supreme Court stopping him and saying this was a violation of the right of free speech, which of course it was. The newly passed First Amendment talks about the inability uh, to abridge the freedom of speech. This is a classic abridgment, of course, in pr- imprisoning your political opponents. But what did the Supreme Court do? Samuel Chase actually sat and made a point of sitting in the trials of these editors and saw to their conviction. He lobbied for the Alien and Sedition Acts to be passed uh, and defended Adams as uh, thoroughly and in as partisan a way as possible. So that's just one example of the danger that the U.S. presidency has really always posed uh, to democracy. And often, you know, it isn't the Supreme Court that defends a democratic constitution. It's people like those editors who used Adams, uh, putting him on trial, talking about their rights to criticize and to speak out that are the real heroes of American democracy. And that's been true throughout in the Civil War period. It was Frederick Douglass. In uh, a later period, it was Ellsberg. And uh, we've had those heroes that we have uh, come to rely on. So who who are the heroes today then, Corey? Who who's going to? I mean, what do we do about this rogue Supreme Court that is essentially a bunch of right wing political activists, Republican political activists in robes? They're well, there for life, well, aren't they? Yes, they are, and that was true in the past too. I should say, certainly during the Dred Scott era, uh, Frederick Douglass found himself not only being persecuted but fleeing to England and. Uh, yet eventually was able to prevail. And I think we're in a similar moment. Things are, um, especially if Trump wins, they'll be as bleak as they've been. But in those moments, it's not just that we need individuals. We need them to galvanize a, a movement behind the idea of constitutional restoration. And of course, on the other side, we have Trump supporters who are really defending an authoritarian idea of the Constitution. And we need to find in our own generation champions of a democratic one. I can't say that I can point to any individual the way I can in the past, that that is going to take time uh, and and requires uh, some courage and some hope. Uh, But the hope of the book is that, you know, we did have Daniel Ellsberg and Frederick Douglass and Trotter, uh, William Monroe Trotter and Wells. Some of these names are well known, some not as well known as they should be, but they were champions 
at each stage of crisis of a democratic constitution. Now, I don't want to be naive either. I mean, you, you, you sounded a skeptical tone rightly about the Supreme Court. American democracy has always been extremely fragile, and uh, it could well be that it is destroyed. And I don't want to pretend otherwise. And that's why we have to take this moment so seriously. If Trump wins this election, the immunity argument could wipe clean the criminal uh, indictments against him and clear the path, uh, as the anti-federalists warned at the founding, uh, for dictatorship. And uh, the presidency is that isn't that powerful? So it, it isn't a moment in which I want to be naive and claim that we have checks on power that will work, or even that the past ways in which we've recovered our democracy will happen again. Uh, but I'm hopeful that it, that it could happen. Right. But if it does happen, and it looks like it is happening, we'll end up with a Supreme Court who is supposed to uphold the law at the highest level sanctioning the most lawless acts in American political history. Uh, I don't think that's going to be particularly helpful for our future. That's right. We can't look to the Supreme Court to save us, but I guess my point is we never could in the past. Mm -hmm. uh, in the muted moment, the future of American democracy rests as it did in 1800 when Adams was up for election and really worked to undermine the Electoral College in similar ways that Trump did. Uh, the, the, the future really rests on this election. And this isn't an ordinary election. It's between a president who basically will respect the Constitution. He could do more to protect it, Joe Biden, uh, and one who is going to try to wreck American democracy in any recognizable way. And that's Donald Trump. And, you know, when it comes down to it, the defense of democracy is an electoral uh, moment. And that, again, that's not, this isn't the only moment we face that kind of crisis. 1800 is one moment. I'll mention another. Um, the uh, election of Ulysses Grant in 1868 was really an election about whether Reconstruction would continue or white supremacy would prevail in the most uh, obscene way. And at least temporarily, that Grant election saved Reconstruction, um, uh, not forever, but for some time. And we face similar moments as 1868 and 1800 in, in this election. Well, Corey Brechenard, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Corey Brechtschneider, who's a professor of political science at Brown University, where he teaches constitutional law and politics, as well as a visiting professor of law at Fordham Law School. He's the author of The Oath in the Office, A Guide to the Constitution for Future Presidents, and Decisions and Dissents of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, A Selection. And his forthcoming book out in July is The Presidents and the People, Five Leaders Who Threatened Democracy and the Citizens Who Fought to Defend It. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an assessment of the revival of labor with organizing wins at Starbucks and at the Mercedes plants in Alabama, where a majority of workers signed up for UAW representation. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. 
And joining us now is Hamilton Nolan, who is a Labour journalist who writes regularly for In These Times magazine and The Guardian. He's written about Labour, politics and class war and was the longest serving writer in Gorka's history and a leader in unionising Gorka Media in 2015. And his new book just out is The Hammer, Power, Inequality and the Struggle for the Soul of Labour. Welcome to Background Briefing, Hamilton Nolan. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And one of the things that I find just absolutely disgraceful, uh, but perhaps not surprising, is that two of the richest men in the world, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, along with the Albrecht family that own Trader Joe's, are working to overturn the 1937 National Labor Relations Act, which was made constitutional back in 37, along with Social Security. They're arguing that the NRLA uh, is unconstitutional. Uh, and, of course, on the grounds that the National Labor Relations Board, the NRLB, its administrative courts mixed judicial functions with executive branch functions. And, of course, this is a bogus argument, but it's likely to work on uh, some of these Supreme Court justices like Samuel Alito, who hate unions. So I want to talk about the positive stuff that's in your book and also that's happening now with Starbucks and with the unionizing, uh, possible unionizing of the Mercedes plant in Alabama. But could we just address that? I mean, it's pretty outrageous, isn't it? The two richest men in the world want to yeah. get rid of unions. Yeah, it's a very extreme move, uh, as you touched on. You know, it's these are companies, obviously, that already are very anti-union companies and already engage in all types of uh, of the normal union busting behavior, uh, captive audience meetings and trying to persuade their employees not to unionize and refusing to bargain contracts in good faith. They already do all that stuff. And now um, they are they are trying to really eradicate the entire post New Deal set of labor protections uh, in the country, which is incredibly extreme move and pretty scary. And the fact that, you know, these companies and, and these billionaires you touched on um, are willing to kind of trash the most basic uh, agency that protects working people in America just because they don't want to have unions at their own company is uh, pretty despicable. And unfortunately, um, now that we do have such a right wing Supreme Court, you know, I've spoken to some labor lawyers and it does seem like it's a very real possibility that the companies could prevail in this case. So it's something to keep an eye on. Um, but but everybody should be outraged by this. So let's talk about Starbucks and the UAW vote down in Alabama for this Mercedes plant and the similar activities underway uh, at the VW plant in Tennessee, and there's a Hyundai plant as well in uh, Alabama where these foreign car manufacturers have gone to these southern states who are essentially feudal, uh, going back to the Civil War. And it looks pretty promising in, in terms of the union vote. They got more of the majority at the plant, at the Mercedes plant in uh, Alabama. Yeah, uh, right. I mean, as you say, you know, companies in America for decades and decades and generations have used the South as a place to sort of relocate to and in much the same way they relocate uh, to Mexico and places like that, you know, to get rid of their unions, to be in a very anti-labor environment and a corporate friendly environment and environment with more desperate 
workers where they can pay lower wages and and where unions have a harder time. So it's extremely important for the labor movement to 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 make that big effort to organize the South and not allow companies to use the entire region to break unions. And um, the UAW, which is for for you know the past year has been under the leadership of Sean Fain, who took power in a sort of democratic reform uprising inside that union. Um, is now making a big, big push to organize, you know, not just one or two, but all of the all of the non-union auto companies left in America. Um, and so you've seen since the UAW won their strike last year, which was a big victory in itself, they use that momentum to turn around and and channel all that energy into organizing these new uh, non-union auto plants. So they've had several uh, declare for elections already, Mercedes being the most recent. And yeah, it's a, it's really they're doing such a great job of riding the wave of energy that that kind of latent wave energy that is all over the country right now um, for organized labor. They are the union that is that is really doing the best job of harnessing that into new organizing. And if they can win some of those uh, non-union auto factories down south, that's a big big deal um, for not just their union and not just for the auto industry, but I think for the whole labor movement. And of course, the Mercedes in its home country of Germany, they have completely different labor laws there where it's compulsory to have members of the unions sitting on the board of directors. Right. <laughs> I mean, how different is that from the kind of slash and burn mentality that they teach at Wharton and Harvard business schools for right. CEOs to take no prisoners and beat the hell out of their workers and treat them like garbage. <laughs> yeah, it goes to show, I mean, there's there's no economic reason why these companies cannot have a unionized workforce. And, you know, they, especially the European companies, I mean, are, work with very un unionized workforces and, and they do just fine over there. So it's, there is nothing going on except sort of the company taking money out of the pockets of workers and transferring that money to investors. And, uh, you know, it's it's it kind of it kind of goes to show how hollow the uh, anti-union arguments those companies are. Let's touch on on uh, Starbucks and what's happening there, because it looks as if the CEO of Starbucks, who once entertained running for president, uh, maybe having a reality check and <laughs> deciding there's no point in continuing the fight against his young employees, yeah. uh, many of them who don't agree with his stance on Gaza, for example. Yeah, the uh, the Starbucks union drive has been one of the most uh, high-profile union drives in the country over the past couple of years, and one of the most successful. You know, they started out unionizing individual Starbucks beginning in Buffalo, New York, um, and in just a couple of years, they've got something close to, I think, 400 uh, different Starbucks stores all across the country, even in red states everywhere. So it's been a really like a campaign that's spread like wildfire, um, very much a member driven campaign. Great example of grassroots labor organizing. And, um, you know, Starbucks has been extremely anti-union and illegally anti-union and indeed has had. Uh, a huge number of unfair labor practice charges filed against them, um, which they have been found guilty of. Uh, Howard Schultz, the founder of Starbucks, was dragged in front of in front of uh, Senate committees to explain why why he suddenly became the most notorious union buster in America. And yeah, but but Starbucks was always holding out against um, having to actually sit down and negotiate a contract with the union. And now, just in the in the past couple of days. 
it appears that the union and Starbucks have come to an agreement that should open the door to negotiating um, a, a national contract that could potentially cover all of all of this, the Starbucks union workers under one contract, which is really the best possible thing that the union could get. So it's a it's a huge victory. And um, it's great that they were able to pull this off. Uh, while Joe Biden is still president uh, and when they have a friendly NLRB overseeing this whole thing, because if Republicans get elected, um, there's no telling what can happen. But it is it is also interesting uh, to remind people that Howard Schultz, who you know became the most notorious union buster in America um, as a result of this Starbucks campaign, was reportedly Hillary Clinton's uh, leading choice for labor secretary if she had been elected president. Yeah, how depressing. So, uh, Hamilton, in your new book, The Hammer, Power, Inequality, and the Struggle for the Soul of Labor, you just mentioned Sean Fain, the UAW leader, who's changing the, the nature of leadership in unions and being much more aggressive. Of course, you've got still got the Teamsters uh, flirting with Donald Trump, who they've met with, which is pretty shameful. But uh, your new book profiles Sarah Nelson, the fiery and charismatic head of the flight attendants union. And she, I must say, you know, reading your book, I get the impression that this woman really should have a political future being a leader in this country because she's so effective, right? I mean, yeah. she's really just out there pounding the, the pavements with the picketers and going all around the country inspiring people. Yes, she's a great labor leader. She's very charismatic. You know, she's a great speaker. And she's a person who I think is driven by, you know, she's a true believer in what she's doing. So she she really works as hard as it is humanly possible to work to promote unions and promote the labor movement. She's the head of the flight attendants uh, union. And, you know, in, in the same way that uh, Sean Fain and the UAW are organizing all the all the non-union auto factories, her union, which is pretty small, relatively only 50,000 people in her union is working to organize 28,000 new uh, flight attendants at Delta. So could potentially grow her union by more than 50 percent in one organizing campaign, which is a good example of the kind of ambition that we need to see in our labor leaders today. So what do you think, though, about my notion that we need more <laughs> political leaders that come out of unions? Yeah. Um, for it's, example, uh, the senator from uh, Ohio, Sherry Brown, mm -hmm. is one of the few. It's, uh, you know, I think there, there are good and bad things about the idea, and it, it is something that comes up a lot. You know, when people see someone like Sarah Nelson, they'll say, you know, you should run for Senate or something like that, um, which, which is you know, is a compliment in one sense. On the other hand, I really like to have the best possible leaders inside the labor movement, too. It's really important that we have actual labor leaders who are the, the best and the brightest of America, you know, and, and being a union leader should be seen as something that's just important as being a politician. So I don't think that it's uh, impossible if the labor movement continues to organize and maintains the energy that it has now and builds on that for the next four years that you could see labor leaders really making a run, you know, for national office um, based on based on that energy. You know, I would love to see Sean Fain and Sarah Nelson run for president. Um, but I think all of that is dependent on actually strengthening the labor movement, first of all. But the other senator from Ohio, of course, is J.D. Vance, who literally 
his friend Peter Thiel uh, essentially bought his Senate seat. Yeah. And he's he's a really nasty reactionary who's full of sort of hatred and anger and kind of libertarian right. yeah, sort he's, of he's, uh, outlook. He's the worst of the worst, definitely. Uh, sort of a guy with zero principles, you know, was a big anti-Trumper. And now you see him kind of groveling to Trump, hoping to hoping to get a, a VP pick or something. So, yeah, it's interesting that a state like Ohio can have someone like Cher Brown, who is like one of the more pro-labor Democrats, and then someone like J.D. Vance, who's, who has no principles at all. Right, but the fact that you reunionized Gawker Media in 2015, which of course was destroyed by Peter <laughs> Thiel, put out of business because of his money, he's the the sort of mentor in a way of Elon Musk, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so these people are, are incredibly dangerous. And do you have any idea of what motivates them? I mean, I guess they're sort of angry that they were not accepted by the cool kids. Uh, when they're in college. Yes, I think that's true. Probably some psychological damage. And really, you know, a, a lot of these people, especially the some of the billionaire class, the billionaire funder class, I mean, I legitimately think they're fascists. You know, if you if you read Peter Thiel's political views, they're extremely, they're sort of medieval almost. I mean, they're, they're, they're very, very far to the right of anything that, that, um, a normal person would be able to countenance. So like, it's, it's scary, you know, that people have that much money and influence and no check on them and can spiral down into fascism and then spread it throughout the American political system in ways like getting somebody like J.D. Vance elected. So in the last couple of minutes then, Hamilton, one of the people that endorsed your book, Stephen Greenhouse, the author of Beaten Down and Worked Up, he, I've spoken to him on a number of occasions, uh, he's just got a piece about AI and how it's going to affect the workplace. And basically, there's some good news and some bad news. You know, bad news is pretty obvious, particularly in politics in this election year. It's likely the Russians are likely to or Putin. Putin is likely to deploy it. He probably is deploying it um, to help elect his buddy, Donald Trump. But on the other hand, there's some possibilities that could actually help workers. What did you find out writing this book? Yeah. And uh, Stephen Greenhouse, great labor reporter. Um, it, you know, AI is obviously going to be a huge labor issue. Um, the most obvious, the most obvious negative impact it's going to have is just is just destroying a whole lot of jobs and particularly sort of knowledge industry type jobs that, that of people who probably thought that they were safe from automation, you know, during the last wave of uh, automation in the manufacturing industry and the blue collar jobs. So that's going to be a huge displacement of a lot of people and is really going to shake up our economy in potentially some terrible ways, you know, but as you say, there is a good case for AI in the sense that you can automate sort of the worst uh, drudgery. Um, but the, the challenge for whether AI is good or bad for labor is really going to come down to who gets the gains from AI, who get, you know, AI is going to increase productivity drastically, um, potentially. And so the question is like, do we privatize all those gains and funnel them up to the billionaire owners of the AI companies? Or do we socialize those gains for the good of society and potentially do things like, for example, go to a four day work week, you know, take the increased productivity that we have from this automation and give it back to the workers themselves. You can work less and earn the same amount of money and have more leisure time. That's sort of the good um, case for AI and labor, but uh, 
it's not going to play out that way unless there's a big, big political effort to make that happen. Well, there's a very alarming graph that shows that productivity and household income tracked in parallel for decades and decades. And then starting with Reagan in the 80s, they started to diverge with more and more profits going to management. And then on the other side, household income dipping down as labor got less and less of the fruits of productivity. And it's sort of pure Marxism in a way. Right. It's what's a, happening. That's a pretty famous chart and such a good illustration of what happens when labor loses its power right because it's it's you know the productivity of workers kept going up and all that all that happened was unions got weak and so the investor class could could channel all of the increases and gains from that productivity into their own pocket instead of having it go into workers pockets and yeah ai is going to be a supercharged version of that there's no question about it so again it it all comes back to can we sort of turn around this ongoing decline of organized labor and re-strengthen the working class in time to be able to channel these gains back to working people so we have our work cut out for us? Well, Hampton Nolan, I thank you for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. And again, I've been speaking with Hamilton Nolan, who's a labor journalist who writes regularly for In These Times magazine and The Guardian. He's written about labor politics and class war and was the longest serving writer in Gorka's history and a leader in unionizing Gorka Media in 2015. His new book just out is The Hammer, Power, Inequality and the Struggle for the Soul of Labor. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.